0: So today I'll be reading from Romans 9 verses 16 to 33. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy for scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up this very for this very purpose that I might display my power in you that and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom He wants to have mercy, and He hardens whom He wants to harden. One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist His will? But who are you, a mere human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make a lo- the same lo- out of this? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes, and some for disposal or refuse? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people, who are not my people. I will call her my loved one, who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved, and the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would become become like Sodom, and we would have been like Gomorrah. Israel's unbelief. What then shall we say, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the righteous way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were written works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. I see lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame.
1: Thank you, Sarah, for reading that. Yeah, this is a, a challenging one. It's a long one. So I'm, it could probably be three sermons. But as we look at this passage, I want you to see it in the light of God's mercy, who he is. Can you turn it down just a bit, Doug? The takeaways from last week, the beginning of, of uh, Romans 9, these were the takeaways from uh, 1 to 15. God's love is wide, not narrow. God is faithful and just to keep his promises. And God is, is still Lord. This week's takeaways are pretty similar. But I want to make it simple. God is sovereign. God is merciful. And God is just. Does that slide up there? Or... There we go. God is sovereign. God is merciful. And God is just. Last week, as we finished off um, in verses 14 and 15, it ended on these words. It said, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. We look at it, it's God's choice to have mercy, it's his choice to have compassion. And what it looks like. One of the words that gets drifted around, and you'll see it in this passage, is around God's wrath. God has the ability to take out whatever he wants. And that's an important part of it, because we can look at it and say, in Sodom and Gomorrah, he wiped out a a, a city based on sinfulness. But it's also based on their lack of trust of who God was. Living out that sinful life. But what Paul's dealing with here is he's dealing with this place again that I shared last week where he's trying to help these Jewish Christians to understand what they are really struggling with. That they believe that because they were born Jewish, that this is their ethnicity, that they have promises that are given to them. But their belief was that's it's just for them. And Paul's telling them that the Gentiles are part of this plan as well. So you see through this, Paul actually, in this chapter, he actually quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Scripture 11 times or refers to 11 times. Because he's not just saying his opinion. He wants them to understand that this is their history. This is who they are, and at times they're missing it. One of the scriptures that many of us know around Scripture, Paul wrote this to Second Timothy, or in 2 Timothy to Timothy, Timothy. It says all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Many of us know this passage, but sometimes we read it as scripture as, a, as scripture as a tool to discipline others. And when we believe that, it kind of gone off the rails. But look what it says in in, uh, the New Living Translation. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. I like that one because it says us. I like the idea That Paul was part of us. That Paul wasn't doing it to say, you people are bad. He's saying, I'm one of those people. Quite often when people use scripture to correct others, they don't come to it with humility saying, I am you. This is us. And so he's wanting these Jewish family members to understand that this is about us. This is a guy who knew Scripture. This is a guy who was in the same place they were, believing that they're chosen, that even those that were followers of Christ, he was taking them out because he believed that they were off the rails, that they were not living the life that God had spoken over them. In that first, in verse 14 and 15, he quotes that scripture where he says um, that, uh, what is it again? Is that I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on those uh, on whom I have compassion. That's from Exodus 33. The reason that Paul said those words was for them to remember where those words came from because of what took place in exodus 32 it was exodus 32 was when they abandoned their faith they came became apostates when Moses didn't come out in a time come down the time they, they wanted they, they got rid of or they, they raised up a golden calf to replace a god. They turned their back on God. Or they were hedging their bets by saying, maybe we can have a few of them just in case Moses doesn't come down. They got afraid. In the next part, and I mean, they got afraid, and the rebellion and idol worship, in the midst of that, this is what he wants them to understand is that God had mercy on them. Don't forget that piece. God had mercy on them when he could have taken them out for being so disobedient. That's incredibly disobedient. These are Jewish people who have been saying God is their God. They experienced the Passover. They experienced God's deliverance. And here they are worshiping a golden calf. Why? It seems so ridiculous. But God was merciful. And Paul's wanting these Jewish Christians to see that being an ethnic Jew does not give them extra special privilege. And that being people of the promise did include the Gentiles. But Paul's wanting to realize that You guys are talking about others that you perceive that are apostates or don't have anything to do with the faith. But he's saying, but you did it too. You abandoned God. You rejected him. So don't think because it's part of being an ethnic Jew that you are above everyone else because you got mercy given to you. That's a hard one. As we go into the next verse, the the, the first verses of this portion, it says, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this, this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Mercy doesn't come from what we do. That we can't make it happen. It can't be our effort. That it can only come from God who decides for himself when to have mercy, when to have compassion. And he talks about Pharaoh, one of the, the scriptures. And it's, it's that story of when the Israelites were, being, uh, were, were trying to get out of Egypt coming out from under slavery. And in that, that story, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It can seem like all God's doing is making someone do something. That's not what it's talking about here. It's not about God saying, I'm going to make him Harden, I'm going to harden his heart so that I can achieve this stuff. That it was something that was already in Pharaoh that he just allowed to take place. But he wasn't hardening Pharaoh's heart. It was because Pharaoh continued to be defiant, he let him continue to be defiant. That's scary. If we're defiant and God says, I'm going to let you continue down that path. That's what he means by he's letting it harden. You ever had that? Where you get, you're unforgivable, you don't don't want to forgive somebody and you start getting harder and harder and harder. God's letting us do that. He's not making us do that. But he didn't allow Pharaoh's heart to harden to show his power. He used it so that God's name would be declared throughout the world. That this wasn't going to be just for the Jews. It's not just their story. It's going to spread throughout the world. That's what they didn't understand. They didn't understand that God was wanting to see this, enti- this promises of him be spread out into a world, not just for the Jews. And yet all their stories, it can sound like he delivered us. He did stuff for us instead of realizing that he had a bigger plan that was a more global plan. So Paul doesn't talk about God controlling because he says in Romans 9, 19 to 21, One of you will say to me, then why does God blame us, still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But you are, uh, but who are you, a mere human being, to talk back to God? So what is does form say to one who is form? Formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay, some pottery for noble purposes, and some for disposal of refuse? Look at what it says in the New Living Translation for that first verse, because it was helpful for me. Well then, you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? They weren't responding to what, what God was doing. They weren't responding uh to hearing his call and that's part of what he's trying to teach them is that you have an opportunity to respond but they aren't responding. They're not even trusting in the Messiah that they know of. Because they're still complaining that why am I not getting my peace? The uh, as you look at Isaiah that that one that one scripture is a uh, Isaiah 29, 16, it says, Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make a, make me like this? That's in Isaiah. And it's, Isaiah has these prophetic words in them that tie to their history. And, and Paul's pointing out things within Isaiah as well, where they miss the boat as well. Where, Even uh, we've heard about King Cyrus over these years. King Cyrus, God used King Cyrus, a pagan Gentile king. That he was a part of their history because he was the one that spoke out to release the Jews from captivity in Babylon. He was the king that declared that. And in Isaiah, it was actually prophesied that Cyrus would be that king. 150 years before he lived, prophets call him by name and talk about the benevolence of him to the Jews. How does that make these ethnic Jews feel? That the prophecy was about someone that wasn't a part of their community. That God was working outside of the realm of just with the Jewish people. He wanted them to know that God is using Gentiles as well. And as you go into the next part, you see the, this language around wrath. Romans 29:22 20, to29. 20, it says. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. I want to stop there for now. The objects of his wrath. He's talking about the Jews. He's talking about that time when they're worshiping golden calves, when they have gone off the rails, that they were the objects of his wrath, that he could have taken them out. But instead, they become objects of his mercy. How huge is that? How much do you see that? Is that the number of times that God is merciful to those that you would think you would take them out? And he's speaking about their story. He's talking about their story. That they believe that it's all about them. The the Hosea passages that are there where he says things like, I will call my people who are not my people, and I will call her my my loved one who is not my loved one. In Hosea, he's speaking these words, and he's bypassing Israel a bit. And he's establishing a new covenant and a new people. This wasn't new, this was something that was in their scriptures that the Gentiles were going to be a part of this story. And for them, it's so difficult because the Gentiles, the perception is they're leading a sinful life. They're not doing all the things that we do. Because they would have to do all the things to repent and confess where they would actually have to go into the temple, do all those things, or there was actions that they had and they wanted to abide by those things. But the Gentiles weren't doing that. How can they get salvation? And even in the midst of uh, the next part where Isaiah talks about the remnants being saved, he, he's referring to the fact that even in the midst of the exile with Babylon, when, when they brought back a remnant, a remnant that carried on the story of the of the Jewish people, God's story. We see a merciful God. I'm not sure that we get that God is merciful. I think when it comes to looking at how God is with those that are not believers, we can begin to say, or believe that God's not going to have mercy on them. Instead of first saying, did God have mercy on me? It should change your perspective of what it means for God to have mercy. We have to see God almost in a new way of being so gracious and understanding that he was so merciful in my sinful life that I got to experience transformation. I got to experience the goodness of his grace and forgiveness. But are we quick to offer that to others? Or are we still expecting that they would become more like us? The problem with more like us is that Paul would come to us and go, Hey, do you remember that time where you turned your back on me? Do you remember that time where you decided to do it all on your own? I didn't take you out. I gave you mercy, grace, forgiveness. If you can't see that, then we become people that lack grace mercy and forgiveness that we have an expectation that people are going to act the way that we act if god is in their life and i get scared thinking but what if they actually do what if they start acting like us because we're quick to say lord have mercy and know that he's going to be merciful but we're not quick to do that with others. He says some hard words in the final few uh, uh, verses of this chapter. He says, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if, they, if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. The stumbling stone was Jesus. And he uses another scripture to talk about what it is where he says, and it's the next slide, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. They believe that righteousness was given freely through their faith in Jesus Christ. seems too simple because I want to see that there's more than just their faith I want to see everything else that goes with that I want them to act more like me I want them to confess their sins I want them to do all the things that I was expected to do when I went to church from the time I was a baby no one should be allowed to come in quickly it's not fair and for the people that obeyed the law, that did all the right things, Paul is saying clearly, they didn't attain their goal. They did not attain their goal just being righteous. That they missed the boat on what the Gentiles already got. That is, they had faith in Christ. Period. Period. Faith in Jesus Christ, the stone that they stumbled over, the source of salvation. It wasn't the Torah. It wasn't the Old Testament. It was was Jesus Christ. He was their salvation. And they believed that them being obedient was their salvation. I love this quote from Michael Bird. It says, If righteousness is by faith, then it is not by Israel's ethos, or ethnos neither jewish effort nor jewish ethnicity puts someone in the right gentiles need to know that righteousness is not acquired by excelling in achievement in jewish rights of religion or by sharing in jewish social life god saves gentiles as gentiles what does that mean for us What does that mean in reference to a world around us? Does he save those people that don't proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord? Is he moving in ways that we don't know? That's what I shared last time, is that we've gotten it wrong where we've said that there's one way to the Father through Jesus Christ. And then we think there's only one way to jesus christ but that's not true there's many ways to christ and one way to god the father through christ and jesus did it all the time people who are coming to him encountering god the father in different ways every time that's why it's so hard to read to hear things being reiterated all the time that were only talked about once. If someone ever asks me again if I'm born again, I don't know what I'm gonna say. My head will explode because that was never intended for people to acknowledge whether or not they know Jesus Christ. That was for a religious guy, a Jewish guy, who believed in Christ, but he was being challenged on his arrogance to believe that he knew who God was and how to live that life. And Jesus said to him, you must be born again. You know your scripture, but you need to learn and uh, and unlearn. You have to be humble enough to realize that you don't know very much, that you have lots of knowledge, but you don't have an understanding of who Christ is. He needed to be born again. But Jesus was always so unique in how he did it. But let me get to my last point, because this is the one I lost sleep over. As I've been reading through 8 and 9, Romans 8 and 9, I've been finding myself relating more to the Jewish Christians. I'm saying, I totally get it. I'd be ticked off too. And I have been. Where I've seen, where I didn't get all the things that I thought I should get, but other people got it. Or I felt like I have been so faithful to you, Lord. It feels like you're not being faithful to me. Paul's expressing this to these people. And they're having a hard time around the inclusion of Gentile Christians who don't abide by Scripture and the law. That did not know Scripture. That needed to be taught Scripture. Which wasn't easy access for them. It was only Jesus Christ they could look to. And those that followed Him. That they were feeling like we're God's chosen. We've heard it all the time. And they are God's chosen. And they will experience God's salvation. But these pagan Christians, that they get to be included as people of the promise, is not fair. It's not fair. And as I was praying through this, I feel like God brought me back to a parable. Simple parable that many of you know. And that's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. This was the parable where a landowner wants to hire people from town to work in the vineyard. And the ones that he meets early in the morning, he promises them one denarius that they'll get at the end of the day. But he goes into town and he says to other ones that are waiting, looking for work, he says, come work for me. And some show up at noon, some show up at three in the afternoon, and some show up at five. And at the end of the day, the landowner says to his supervisor, gather them all together and pay them. The thing he says that would tick me off is he says, pay first the ones that came later. And the ones that came earlier, pay them last. And so he starts to divvy out. And the guys that started at five get the Daenerys. The ones that started at three get a Daenerys. The ones that started at 12 get a Daenerys. And the ones that started early in the morning get one Daenerys. would be ticked off. Why? And the response of the landlord says, but, but he answered one of them, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a Daenerys? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. It's not supposed to work that way. I know that we'd be calling the labor board quickly. If we had that happen. Even if you were promised it and you got it anyways, are we thankful? No. We want what the other guy has. And that's part of our human nature. I think I shared with some friends of mine that the, the capuchin monkeys, have you seen those too? Where, where they're given the same thing as a reward for doing some, some, something, something simple. They kept giving them cucumber, cucumber, cucumber. Then they started giving one of them grapes and the other cucumber. And they're right beside each other. And the one that's getting cucumber going, wait a second. And looking over at the other cage and going, I want a grape. And then they do something else, cucumber, grape. And it starts to lose its mind. It starts to reach through and tries to grab it, hammering, going, what's going on? And even takes it and chucks it against the wall. That's a monkey. That's in us. That's that's what we do. It's our nature. And Jesus Christ is trying to change our nature. He's wanting us to not be those people. Why are we not the people that are saying, I am so glad that those guys that started at five got the same as I did. Praise the Lord. And yet we still have a gauge. I have a, a a movie that I a documentary done by a guy in in uh, Abbotsford, but he interviewed all the pastors during that whole controversy around hell. Movie was called Hellbound. But one of the pastors said, asked about hell, and there's all these different views of what hell is. But they asked this one pastor about Hitler. He said, "Is Hitler in hell?" And his response was. He better be, or this isn't worth it. This doesn't make sense. There has to be a place where someone pays for their sinful lives. He has to be in hell. Have we ever done that? Have we ever believed that someone deserves that? And he wanted hell to be the eternal damnation. And there's been different views of hell, but he wants it for Hitler that he would be burning on and on. Not saying, I pray that Hitler's in heaven. Desiring that for everyone. We get angry that it's not fair. We get angry if we think that somehow people are going to experience God's crazy mercy and crazy compassion when they deserve something else but Paul would say the same thing to you are you crazy you've been shown mercy over and over and over again when will you start offering mercy to the world around you, offering grace and forgiveness instead of condemnation? Because this book says it a number of times. There is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. So that should never come out of our mouths. I had a friend just at, at, uh, at the Calgary thing where she talked about her community. With LGBTQ and people being a part of that community, she just was excited that there coming into the kingdom, that they're discovering who Christ is. But she had someone walk up to her after she said that and said, do you know that you're condemning all of your people to hell and there's blood on your hands? For what purpose? Because that doesn't sound like the God of love and mercy. That God is merciful. He is sovereign. I think the challenge for us is that I think we're a lot like the Jewish Christians that don't trust in God being a God of promise for everyone. He didn't die just for Christians. He died for everyone that all would be saved. Why don't we want that for everybody? And why don't we do it through love grace, forgiveness, and mercy, because that's what he did. Shannon and I have talked about this a number of times, the woman caught in adultery, where Jesus says, he was without sin, cast the first stone, that they're ready to kill her, because the Bible says, I can. And Jesus says, he was without sin, cast the first stone, and they all drop the rocks. The part that Shannon pointed out to me that was the hardest piece was Jesus was the only one that could cast the stone and he didn't. So how can I, I have lost sleep over this because I've been looking at this Christian faith so backwards that it's something that I achieve, that I can get there. If I say a prayer, And others can't get there if they don't do it the right way. Instead of going, God, I lift up my community to you, that they would know your saving grace and mercy, that I would become that. I should not be the voice of condemnation. In fact, I think that's scary. I think it's scary if you're the one that goes and points out someone's sin. Because from what I see God does, with those that are followers, You're under more judgment than they are. You're called to do something that's harder to do, and that's to offer grace, forgiveness, love, and mercy. We need to stay on that track because Jesus said, Follow me. I didn't throw the rock, therefore, you can't. You cannot. The moment you begin to judge others, what Paul is trying to say to them is that they're missing out. They're absolutely missing out. And they will not experience the fullness of God's grace and love and mercy if they're not walking that out themselves. Let me pray. Lord, this is a hard teaching. And I can hear... I can hear it from a man like Paul who is a man who believed he knew that he knew that he knew. And Jesus comes along and says, you don't know. And he's having to go through it again. And now he's talking to people that he would consider his kinsfolk, his people, to tell them, you guys, You only have a piece of it. And he's pouring it out on those that are Gentiles. Those that are not believers. Lord, I want to trust in a God that's moving. Not because I have a great argument. But that I see your faithfulness, your promise all through scripture. That one of the things that Paul sees, he sees Jesus Christ through entire scripture that we need to filter the scriptures through Jesus. Lord, bring us to a a greater knowledge of you. I don't wanna be turned away, Lord, when you say you call me Lord, Lord, and I never knew you. I don't wanna be that person, but I don't want us to walk this out in fear. I wanna walk it out with a sense that we are to offer something so powerful. Your mercy, your grace, your love, your forgiveness. May you be glorified in our lives, Lord, as we walk it out. In Jesus' name, amen.